it's a rare occurrence for me that I miss worship, obviously. Uh, but when I do, I, I think I realize how much I can take it for granted. And when I miss it, uh, I feel it. And I definitely felt it this last week, being away, absent from the means of grace, from the fellowship of the saints. So I'm, uh, it's been refreshing so far to be back worshiping with you this morning, and, and I'm uh, grateful to God for that. Um, so um, today we're going to look at Second Thessalonians 1 as a uh, message focusing or thinking about the, the new year. And uh, we'll look primarily at 11 and 12, but we'll read all of 3 through 12. And let's pray before we go to the word. Our Father, will you fulfill in us that which is pleasing in your sight? As we begin a new year, may we be enlivened and refreshed, not by uh, kind of mere fla- flashes in the pan of momentary optimism, but in real and substantive uh, long progress in sanctification through the ordinary means of grace. May we as your church in this place do great things this year, uh, not necessarily through initiatives and programs, but through the simple faithfulness of good deeds, hospitality and kindness in the clear and persistent spreading of the gospel. We ask that you would help us to bear up under whatever suffering and trials you have prepared for us for this year, that we might learn to rejoice in them, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Ultimately, our Lord, we come to you asking these things of your grace, because we know, try as we might, none of these things will happen unless you do them in and among us. In Christ's name we ask, amen. Please stand for the reading of the word, Second Thessalonians 1, 3 through 12. The Apostle Paul We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
This is God's word. Uh, you may be seated. For many, and perhaps for some of you, New Year's is just another degree of rotation of the earth around the sun. It's just another day. And I think I feel that way to a degree, too. But for some, and I think I, I sense this, that it does feel like a fresh start every new year. There's something to that. Um, and it can be good, even though there's no moral obligation to do so, to, to take advantage of that sense. It's a great opportunity to reflect on life's uh, greater purposes, uh, priorities, and goals. New Year's does become kind of a commentary on the tug of war in our hearts between a, a fresh zeal and apathy that soon sets in, oftentimes. Uh, a, f- a fresh resolve often devolves into disappointed apathy. Of course, my interest in, is not in charging you to uh, make this the greatest year of your life to date or to make great resolutions or, or, or radical life transformation. Uh, but I do think one benefit of the new year is that it reminds us I really do want to make something a value of this life. I want to live a life that pleases God and that that's in, in accord with who he made me in Christ. And, and that serves people and that serves a, a purpose greater than myself. It's an impulse that beca- becomes uh, unwieldy at times, but uh, it's also an impulse that's within us rightly as image bearers of God and one that's worth uh, grabbing hold of and submitting and sub- subordinating to the word of God. So this text this morning, and again we're going to focus on 11 and 12, uh, it challenges saints to live lives worthy of the Christian calling, while also reminding us, ultimately, it's of God. The power of God to live a life of Christian calling is of God, which is a challenge and a reminder worthy of consideration as we launch into a new year because it proves to us to be both propulsion and the ballast that we need to do that well. Um, So as we go to the text, the text breaks down into uh, two petitions and two purposes from Paul. Two petitions and two purposes. And the first petition is that they would be worthy of the call. Verse 11, to this end, we always pray for you that our God make you worthy of his calling. So he says, we always pray for you. And, and he says, to this end. So to what end exactly? And to answer this, we have to look at the preceding context. And actually, in, in English, it's numerous sentences. But in Greek, typical Pauline fashion, from three to ten is one sentence. So to that end, to everything that he just said in the previous sentence. Paul, in this sentence, prays prayers of thanksgiving for the Thessalonian Christians because of their growing faith, their abundance of love. And Paul and his companions are they're even boasting about them because they're standing firm in persecution. And Paul says that this persecution, together with the steadfastness that they're showing, is the judgment of God. And there's two judgments, one positive, one negative. The positive is that it's evidence of the genuineness of their faith, essentially. And then the negative judgment is the condemnation on those who would persecute them. So those who are suffering are judged worthy of the kingdom, he says. 
and persecution and suffering for the kingdom and their steadfastness counterintuitively is confirmation of their stake in the kingdom. Likewise, the wicked men who persecute them will be repaid. Um, their condemnation is actually seen in their persecution, but it also uh, the, this consummation of their reward is given a time stamp in the text. When will this happen? When will judgment happen? And in verse 7 it, it says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So ultimate judgment will come at the end of all things when Jesus comes back. And then the same again in verse 10, when he comes on that day to be glorified by his saints or in his saints. So it is this uh, in time contrast between those who believe and those who persecute, those who will glorify Christ and those who do not obey the gospel um, and those who will, who will be counted worthy of the kingdom and those who will be judged. This sets up the context for Paul's final prayer here in verses 11 and 12. The emphasis in verses 11 and 12 in Paul's prayer for the Thessalonian Christians uh, who, who may be facing temptation to persecution um, and I think that the, the emphasis here is on the word you. Which side of the divide will you, Thessalonians, be on? And, and will you live in light of that identity? These two verses. Um, so look at verse 11 again. To this end, we always pray for you that God would make you worthy of his calling. And in, in the Greek, the placement of the word, the second you there is in the emphatic position. So it's not normally supposed to go first. It goes first here. So he's putting special emphasis on the word you. How, how will you fare in this end time situation? So this prayer is, is ultimately a prayer for vindication and, and for perseverance in the light of, of great um, suffering and persecution uh, and really not just perseverance but also preservation because it's ultimately God who does it. I also agree with the commentator uh, Jeffrey Wyma that there's an implicit challenge in this prayer that they know what Paul wants for them so they should therefore seek that thing. It's a challenge to be who they are in Christ to live according to their calling and to live out their calling. <clears throat> I love these prayers in Paul um, and in, in the epistles in general of the the uh, apostles um, because they're so informative to listen in to what Paul wants for the flock. These are his desires for the flock. And of course, he tailors the prayers to those flocks. But there's also the core of those prayers is, is evergreen. There's uh, persistent themes that we can apply to ourselves. Um, and so what what was important for the Thessalonian Christians is important for us in 2023. Now, what was he praying for them? And the first thing we see, the first petition is that he uh, that our God may make you worthy of his calling. That God may make you worthy of his calling. This prayer for sustenance, for preservation, is expressed in the desire that, that God would bring, bring his calling and their will or their desires or, or their uh, 
actions into alignment with his will. From which we see first that the two things must comport God's will and our uh, will and desires for a saving God honoring profession to be true. And second, that it is God who affects the whole of our salvation beginning to end, not just justification, but sanctification as well. So what does this mean uh, to make worthy of the calling? My initial feeling of that, that word worthy, I think we might cringe at that word a little bit. It almost feels like a job application. Are you worthy for this job? Do you have the, the credentials, the skills to accomplish the job? Are you up to the task? Or, or perhaps the idea of worthiness, maybe it puts in our mind, are you really worthy to be in the presence of greatness, in the presence of the king? But of course, that's not the idea here at all. Um, he's talking to Christian people, people who are already called. And we know that the gospel repudiates any mixture of, of grace with works. So what does he mean? When we talk about salvation, I think generally we often focus on initiation. On the moment when we were saved, uh, when we were converted, uh, when we were justified or, or, or reborn or uh, adopted into the family of God. But scripture, and I think Paul in particular, emphasizing, uh, he emphasizes God's saving hand in the whole of salvation. God not only aims the arrow and releases it, but he guides it to its ultimate destination. Calvin says, hence he is said to account us worthy when he conducts us to the point at which we are aimed. So it's the whole of our salvation that God is guiding us through. So worthiness here is not related to qualification, but to confirmation. Suffering, particularly suffering persecution, together with the perseverance of these saints, serves to confirm their union with Christ. They are suffering with him. They are indeed with him outside the camp. The apostles demonstrated this concept in Acts 5 when the Sanhedrin commanded them to stop preaching the gospel and they flogged them. And Luke says, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. To suffer dishonor for the name. So suffering with Christ as Christians is... is in inevitability in some capacity in our lives because we are united to him. We share in his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his ascension and his glory by virtue of our union with him. Romans 8:17 says we are heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. Analogies always fall apart, but it's a bit like being married. Uh, you know you're married if you're married. Uh, you took vows to be married. But marriage does not stop at the altar. It begins there. 
And there are things that follow to confirm and express the marriage bond. You, you work together toward common goals. You, you're intimate. You, you fight and work through challenges. You, you establish and live out roles that fulfill the call to exercise dominion together. All of these things come with the territory and, and confirm and express the marriage bond, and, and they form the substance of marriage. In a similar way, there are certain things that just come with the territory that are the substance of what it is to be a Christian. Christianity doesn't end at conversion. It begins at conversion. These things don't make you a Christian in an initiating way, but they are an inevitable outcome of being united to Christ. Suffering and persecution, particularly in the context of Thessalonica, which if you remember from Acts 17 is the most hostile city perhaps in all of Paul's missionary journeys. It's an inevitability for them. So Paul is saying, ah, yes, you are suffering and you are persevering and this is evidence of God's judgment on you, which is favorable. You are considered worthy of the kingdom. And now my prayer is that you would continue, that, that God would continue to, to increase the worthiness in you, that you would live consistent with your calling. I wonder if this would be a prayer we might pray for ourselves and for each other in 2023. Um, certainly there's all kinds of excellent goals we might want to pursue this year, get in shape, read more books, become financially stable, uh, take an exciting trip, all good things. But the value of prioritizing the prayer, God, make me worthy of my calling. Align my actions and my thoughts with your will. This places those other goals in context and are indeed, if rightly conceived, actually it gives those goals legs. So the first petition is to make them worthy of their calling. Second, uh, there's a second confirming inevitability in, in the Christian life, and that is works, the works that we do, the fruit of faith and repentance. Uh, which is the second petition, which is that they would be filled by God's power. So verse 11 again, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good, good and every good uh, work of faith by his power. <coughs> First, he says he, that he asked that, that God would fulfill Fulfill every resolve and good work. Now, this word fulfill means to bring com to completion or to fill up, fill up your gas tank. Uh, so the idea is very similar to that of confirmation. After conversion, there's a whole Christian life to be lived, to be filled up. The process of sanctification is the filling up, the filling out of the picture of the fullness of our salvation. And once again, it's God who does this. I think sometimes we assume we, we take over for God after we're converted and we start to work on sanctifying ourselves. But God, Paul's prayer is that God would do this in them. 
God would bring to completion in the lives of the saints. And notice at the end of verse 11 how this happens. It's by his power. By his power. It's the power of God that's working in us to do what he's commanded. Uh, Paul was acquainted with working hard in the power of God. He said of the other apostles, I worked harder than any of them, yet it was not I who worked, but the grace of God in me. In Colossians, he says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So Paul is working, toiling, struggling, agonizing, and yet it is the energy of God that powerfully works within him to do it. So what is it that Paul wants to see filled up by the power of God in the life of these believers? <clears throat> he says two things. First, that he would fill up every resolve for good. Every resolve for good. Actually, it's a little bit ambiguous here. There could be two meanings. The first is that, that God fills up his own desire for good works in the, the Thessalonians. And the second is that God would bring about the desires or the resolve of the Thessalonians to do good. And I think in light of the parallel with every work of faith, I'm inclined toward the latter. Um, certainly both are true, but I think uh, he's saying, may God fill up for you the desires or, or bring to fruition the resolves for good that you have. This word translated resolve means uh, desires or goodwill. And never at any point in the year is there a greater resolve for good than the new year. Paul's prayer here is make God, may God bring to reality the desires that you have to do good. And of course, that doesn't mean he will give you everything you want if it's good. There are many good things God withholds. Rather, Paul's implicit challenge to the Thessalonian Christians is that they will have the resolve for good. And moreover, he reminds them that it's God himself who will bring about both the resolve and, and, and the power to execute those resolves. All the resolve we can muster within ourselves will be nothing if God doesn't bring it to fulfillment. The second thing Paul wants to see filled up is, is he moves here from, from will to action, from resolve to work. So the second thing is every work of faith. We have to remember that, that faith works. There's no hope in work that, that we will merit God's favor, but believing God, Abraham started to walk. He, I, I, I believe the promise. I'm going to stay in Ur. No, he, he began to walk. And yet even that first step was ultimately of the grace of God. Now here, at least to my mind, the whole question of divine sovereignty and, and human responsibility comes into play. And it's a question that can be difficult. It's a, a philosophical consternation. I don't think even philosophers have solved that question. And yet the Reformed answer, and I think the biblical answer, often called compatibilism or divine concurrence, uh, which are big words, but, but if we'll just listen to God's word, it's actually pretty plain. 
The philosophical uh, mechanics continue to escape us, but it's actually fairly intuitive. Uh, Jan Studheit wrote in her letter, and then she made the comment when she was here too, but this has stuck with me as the perfect illustration of this, of those who would pray fervently to the Lord all night and fast that he would help them to pass their exam and then fail to study for the exam. It's intuitive. We know we work hard and we pray to God. And we, try, we, we don't understand the mechanics of how it all works, but God works and we work. I remember many times growing up, even if I'm honest in more recent years, praying to catch a fish while fishing. I remember laying on the side of the bank, just, come on, with the bite. You know, you work so hard to get where you're going. You use the best gear, the best tactics that you know, go at the right times of day. And at the end of the day, I can't control the fish putting his that hook in his mouth. So I pray to God, right? Or even another intuitive example, safety on the roads. We always pray that, that our friends and family be safe. There's all kinds of real world factors that play into safety on the road. And yet we know we live in God's world and he has it all in control. So in that sense, it's very intuitive and very biblical that God works and he works through secondary causes. So faith in God's sovereignty, his saving plan, his providential actions in the world, far from removing the necessity of work. Once again, it actually gives legs to the things that we do. The student prays hard and he thanks God for success on his exam. And he studies hard. This is Paul's prayer that God would fulfill every resolve for every good and every work of faith. I think this text helps us with that tug of war we might experience between a a fresh zeal and an apathy in the new year. Because that's exactly what Paul had to deal with in Thessalonica. You remember in in Acts 17, there's two groups of people in Thessalonica, the self-righteous Jews and essentially the street bums. He calls them rabble, Luke does in in Acts 17. People who just live on the street, homeless people. There's the two two sides of the the difficulty that's in our hearts. We're either self-righteous and we think, I can do it, or we're street bums. (laughs) We're we're apathetic and we, we just presume on the grace of God. This text helps us to deal with both. Paul deals with this this whole issue later in 2 Thessalonians as well. In uh, chapter 3, 11 through 13, he says, we, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. So we have that same basic problem within our hearts. There's a tug of war between self-righteousness and apathy. Would that God would grant us to, to work with all our strength and all our might in his power in the coming year. Next, Paul gives us two uh, purposes for his prayer. The first purpose is uh, that the name of Jesus would be glorified. In verse 12, 
so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. So why is Paul praying his prayer? This gives us the purpose. Again, in verse 12, I think the emphasis is on you. The fuller sort of explication of the glory of Christ was given in verses 9 and 10. And in this verse, his hope, rather his confident expectation is in the Lord, that they would be the ones that are standing there glorifying Christ on the last day. It's really an amazing and a wonderful hope, considering that the very same name by which they are being persecuted, for which they're being persecuted, is the name in which they will find, that, that Christ will find his glory, that they will glorify the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you just take a look back at this theme of glorification in eight and, uh, 9 and 10, um, <clears throat> this is where Christ it says we'll, he will receive when he, uh, glory when he returns in judgment. And he'll punish those who do not obey the gospel, casting them out of the presence of his glorious might. But he will be, and notice the prepositions here, in and among. Two prepositions. In and among his people who marvel at Christ. In the Greek, in this phrase, in, in verse 11, glorified in you, the word in can mean a few things. Uh, it can mean, uh, it can convey instrumentality, um, that Christ would be glorified by or, or through his saints. Or it conveys location, that he might be glorified in and among or in your midst. And I agree with those who think that it's the latter, that it's in it, uh, location that it's in you, in your, in the saints. I pray that God would make you worthy of the call and fulfill every resolve and work in faith of faith, because I want you to stand among the people who will stand and marvel at the glory of Christ when He appears on the last day. There's always this sense of of ultimacy with Paul in his prayers and in his his letters. This eschatological view of the world. That in his fatherly love for the flock, he, it extends beyond the temporal to the uh, eternal. That's this ultimate purpose, the full and final glorification of Christ on the last day, is for him the driving force behind everything that's done. I think this is what he means in Colossians when he speaks of the hope of glory. Now, not only will Christ be glorified on that day in and among us, but also, and this is a bit shocking and unexpected, it says, and you in him. You will receive glory on that day. That's the second purpose, that the saints would be glorified. That we should have some glory too is a bit beyond comprehension. It's beyond expectation. Uh, of course, we won't share in divine glory in the sense that Jesus does, of, of ultimate glory, but our vital connection to the name of Jesus, for which we have endured scorn, will be the same connection through which we share in triumph. By our union with Christ, we endure suffering and will enjoy glorification. Again, 
Romans 8:17, provided we suffer with him, that we might also be glorified with him. There's a 19th century French reform pastor, Adolphe Monod. Um, I just finished a, a, a devotional book by him. And he sums up the apostolic teaching about union with Christ really well. He says, Scripture begins and so fully, uh, by so fully uniting the Christian to his Savior through faith that what happens to him happens to us. And his story is reproduced inwardly but truly in each of his children. If he dies, we die. If he is resurrected, we are resurrected. If he ascends to heaven, we ascend there too. This is how we are saved, because we are made one with Christ through faith. He will be glorified, we will be glorified. I think what a wonderful thought amid the sufferings and the trials of this life. That we, even we, will be standing there at the day of judgment not condemned, but marveling at the glory of Christ because we've been united to him by faith. Now we share in his glorification. We will be lifted up. We'll be vindicated from those who hate us and they'll be cast down and cast away. But by virtue of Christ and by his merits that we have by faith, in the end, we'll glorify him and we will receive glory on that day as well. which is nothing short of pure, uncut grace. Of course, we, I think, you know, yeah, I need salvation. I'm grateful for salvation, but that I could receive glory on top of that. That's astonishing. This is just pure grace, as he says. It's according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I don't know what 2023 will bring. Uh, I'm not a prophet, but I'll, I'll make a prediction that it will bring blessing and great difficulty. You can get your stones at the end of the year and throw them at me if either of those things isn't true for you. But we'll toil amid the, the thorns in the soil and the, the thorns in the flesh and we'll face opposition, we'll face trials of many kinds. But mostly I think we'll, we'll plod along in faith, doing the work that God has given us to do, upheld by the ordinary means God has given to sustain us. As Paul offers a good reminder in Titus 2, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age waiting for the, our blessed hope, the appearing of the, the great, uh, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So may he make us worthy of his calling and fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in us and we in him, according to the grace of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.